Interested in a Catholic angle on healthcare topics? Then check out Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. You can listen and download at chausa.org slash podcast, or subscribe through iTunes or Google Play. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Olga. <laughs> you are looking like your um, seasons are a little confused. Yeah. Uh, yep. Because my seasons are confused. So I'm wearing a winter sweater yeah. and a spring tie today yeah. because the weather can't figure itself out. Yeah. May has been a disaster. Mm-hmm. It's been so cold this week. I, I don't want this anymore. But it did give us a good drink idea. Yes. Yeah, so what's on tap this week, Zach? Uh, so we're drinking Dark and Stormies because it's been a little... Cold, dark, and stormy, which yeah. uh, I do have one question about. Uh, I noticed you used diet ginger beer, and I wanted to know what it is about the diet ginger beer that you like, or if you're just transferring your love of diet Coke <laughs> to ginger beer. I'm just being healthy, Zach. <laughs> but is it like, I actually have no idea. Is it calories? Is it like... She just likes the word diet in her drinks. Zach. Okay. That's yeah. It. yeah. All right. <laughs> just be happy. I'm drinking one of your cocktails. All right. I was just wondering. I just wanted to know so I could... Taylor, more cocktails to you. (laughs) And who are we talking to this week, Olga? So this week, we've got an interview with Father Hans Zollner. He is a German psychologist and theologian and one of the leading experts on sexual abuse working in the Catholic Church. Yeah, Father Zollner was one of the four organizers of the February Sexual Abuse Summit at the Vatican. Uh, We talked to Father Zollner about what came out of that meeting and what makes the sexual abuse crisis in the church such a unique tragedy. Yeah, and so we talked to Father Zollner a couple weeks ago, but we wanted to bring you this interview now because there have been some recent developments. Um, Pope Francis recently released a document that sets out guidelines for how abuse will be reported in the church going forward. But we'll get into that more in Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Olga? So our first story, as Ashley mentioned, Pope Francis issued last week a motu proprio or an executive order. Um, and this new document creates rules for reporting and investigating sexual abuse in the church all throughout the world. Yeah, it's a big deal. It makes it mandatory for all clerics and male and female religious to report cases of abuse by clergy to authorities, including abuse committed by bishops and cardinals. Yeah, and this is one of the big things that's been a sticking point for people who just are frustrated by the pace of reform in the church when it comes to sex abuse. We hadn't really seen any directives from the Vatican about how the church is going to hold bishops accountable who have been negligent or covered up abuse. Um, and well, so, th- What are some of the specifics of the bill? So some of the specifics include, by 2020, every diocese around the world has to create a system that allows people to report any kind of clerical abuse, and it also requires the Vatican to begin investigating any claims that are filed within 30 days of, re- of receiving such reports. And also bishops' conferences have to create funds to support these investigations that are supposed to start happening by next year. Yeah, and on top of that, it uh, puts in place whistleblower protections for people who do bring allegations so they can't be retaliated against or, you know, quieted. And another really significant thing that this document has is that it's placing a lot of focus on bishop accountability. And Charles Cicluna has stated that 
bishops are at the service of the people and they aren't above the law. So it's it's really significant to see this coming out of the Vatican. Yeah. And I think some people in the U.S. might be, I don't know, not as disappointed or not recognizing its significance as much because a lot of these guidelines are already in place here. But because we've been dealing with this since 2002 in a lot of ways. And this issue got reopened last summer when everything was happening. But this is really catching the entire global church up. Yeah. And it's it's a first step. You know, this is just reporting. There's still this step of punishing people once mm-hmm. those reports have been made. So it's not a story that is going away anytime soon. Um, but I, I think this is a hopeful development. What's our next story, Zach? So Pope Francis has given an update on the commission for the study of uh, women in the diaconate that he set up almost three years ago. Um, he was uh, after his recent trip to Macedonia on the plane back from Skopje to Rome, he was asked about the commission's status and the report he'd been given. Right. So this was a group that was set up to study the history of women deacons in the church. Um, this is something that the church has been, you know, studying and talking about for decades now. Um, and basically, the idea is this commission would look back at the history, see what the role of women deacons were, and if it's something that could be reinstated today. Um the commission did not come to an agreement, right, Olga? Yeah, so they agreed that there were women deacons. However, the disagreement came that whether or not they were, quote-unquote, ordained the way that male deacons were and are today. Yeah, and Pope Francis, in relaying this information about the commission, seemed kind of noncommittal to his opinion on that exact question, right? Um, He is encouraged further study. So what are your reactions to this? Yeah, so I'm not... I can't say I'm that surprised. Pope Francis had said in an earlier interview, basically, if you create a commission, that's the easiest way to make sure something is never resolved. And so by initially creating a commission to study this, I think he was signaling that this might not be something he's ready to make a firm decision on. And he was saying that just about commissions in general, not commissions on women. So, I mean, hopefully he was not trying to just stifle I mean, but the fact that his response to the first commission was more study. Yeah, no. And that's the frustrating thing for me is that, like, what did the report say? It wasn't that long. It would be nice to just sort of see where the chips fell. Like, what are the what are the claims and what are the arguments that each person came up with? And I was really encouraged to see, like, Vatican time and structure being given to this question. And I would hope that there's more structure instead of Let's just keep talking about this and studying it more because, Mm -hmm. frankly, academics have been studying this question for quite a while, and I'm not sure that we need more of it. Right. And I agree with you, Zach. I think that it is important for us to see what the commission studied, whatever research came out of this. Um, But I find it a little discouraging to know that, you know, it's been almost three years since this commission began um, and that it's inconclusive. And now there's more research that he wants us, Pope Francis wants people to do. And I think that it would mean so much to so many people to see women at the altar. And it's just it's just discouraging that now the, what we're getting is, OK, we're just going to do more of this, you know? Yeah, I I personally do not get that exercised about the topic of women deacons. Um, and like personally, I would rather see us talking about women cardinals, which is actually theologically less tricky than women deacons um, because there are, you know, it's not connected in any way to holy orders um so i just kind of i don't know it's hard for me to to look at the issue of women deacons and be like yes i want to i want another three years of study on this <laughs> right no i hear that but also these are sort of the the reservations about whether this is where we're spending the right energy and whether people 
wanted or deserved it. Those aren't really the right questions, right? It's whether or not there were women deacons and whether they were ordained in the same way that men were. And if that is what Jesus wants from the church today, those are, then if we can resolve those questions, then I think they're 100% worth the effort and energy. What's our next story, Olga? Asia Bibi, the Pakistani woman who was accused and acquitted of blasphemy, has arrived in Canada and has been reunited with her family. Yeah, so this is a story we've talked about before. Um, last year, a death sentence in Pakistan was overturned, um, but it was a question of whether or not she was going to be able to leave the country. Her safety was really in question, and on May 7th, she finally left, and we're happy to report she's with her family. What's our next story, Zach? So a Catholic church in Chicago has hosted the Nation of Islam leader, Louis Farrakhan, where he referred to satanic Jews in a speech uh, that was supposed to be about his removal from Facebook. Yeah. So and so he was invited by the pastor of this church, uh, Father Michael uh, Flagler. Flager. Um, and Farrakhan is a known quantity. He has made anti-Semitic statements in the past, misogynistic, anti-LGBT statements. Um, so what, so the, the Catholic Church knew what it was getting. Father Flager shouldn't have been surprised by what happened right. mm-hmm. there. And and when he and when uh, Louis Farrakhan came to the church, he talked about how he had been sent by God to uh, separate the Satanic Jews from the good Jews, and he implied that the Talmud, which is the set of Jewish teachings, promoted um, pedophilia. So really, really ugly, ugly statements. Um, and for for context, Father Flager is well known for his activism on the south side of Chicago in the black community. Right. And and in this situation, it, it's really unfortunate because he's so well known for his activism. But in this situation, he gave Farrakhan this space and just enabled anti-Semitism and hate speech. You know, and it, it's it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Cardinal Supich put it well when he said, anti-Semitic rhetoric has no place in American public life and let alone in a Catholic church. And he apologized to his Jewish brothers and sisters um, who he counts as his friends and mentors and whose covenant with God remains eternal. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is terrible regardless of when when it would happen, but we are in a time when we have seen attacks on synagogues and a rise in anti-Semitism. So I think we can all agree with Cardinal Supich that this has no place in our church. What's our next story, Ashley? So... This past weekend, Pope Francis' head of charity broke the law to restore power to a homeless shelter at, at the Vatican or this in is, Rome. This is a, a great story, and I'm dying. I'm dying for a profile on this cardinal. Cardinal Conrad Kurweski is, as you mentioned, uh, an aide to Pope Francis in charge of charity. So other things he does in addition to breaking the law to rewire uh, so he, he electricity. He actually went down into a manhole to yes. <laughs> rehook up the power to this homeless shelter. Does where did he get this knowledge? One, how, did did he just Google it? This is what I'm imagining. He's YouTubing how to rewire power. Um, but in addition to that, he also spearheads efforts like building showers for the homeless and uh, salons and barbershops for people can uh, come and get their hair cut, uh, which is kind of amazing. So why, why was this uh, shelter in the dark in the first place, Olga? So the group that owns the building is in debt for 337 337- thousand dollars so the power was turned off on may 6th and they like so many people do in 2019 went on facebook to ask for help and that's how the cardinal came across this yeah and so he literally climbs down the manhole Mm -hmm. rewires and kind of drew and he thought he had to clarify for reporters that (laughs) he was not drunk he he did not go down there because he was drunk he wants to make that very clear and already amazing story just gets even greater that's the best part that he did not do this because he was drunk he did this because there were a lot of women and children that had no power or no water for days. Yes. He's also not an electrician, so impressive that he could do it at all. 
So, Cardinal, we tip our hat to you. <laughs> Thank you for what, what did you what did someone say his name was at the his nickname was at the Cardinal? Don Conrad. Don Conrad. Thank you, Cardinal Don Conrad. <laughs> Joining us in studio today is Father Hans Zoner, a German theologian and psychologist and one of the leading experts on sexual abuse working in the Catholic Church. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you. Welcome. So you were one of the four organizers of the February Summit on Sex Abuse. So how often, Father, do you hear from survivors? Yeah, I, I hear daily from survivors because there are a few of them who write to me day after day. Um, and it is very important for me um, for two reasons, that I have this constant contact with survivors from different parts of the world, from different countries and languages, because one, you see that uh, the work uh, needs to be continued uh, and we cannot let it go. We, we need to be relentless on that and uh, pushing forward. And a, a strong motivation comes from the stories that I listen to, because like this person said yesterday, I want the church to be the church that Jesus Christ built and wanted it to be. So we need attention to the most vulnerable and who is more vulnerable than children. And secondly, because many of those survivors promise to pray for me and for all what we do in the Center for Child Protection of the Gregorian University. How did you get started in this work? What motivated you to do this? Okay, I'm a licensed psychologist and psychotherapist, and when I studied psychology, we, we learned about psychopathology, including pedophilia, which is one part of sexual violence against minors, the most grievous one, because it concerns prepubescent children. Uh, but in 2010, the avalanche, the tsunami of, of news broke uh, in Germany first, and then in other parts of, of Europe. And from that moment on, I got uh, involved in this basically full-time. Why? Because I thought that uh, the, uh, everything was concentrated uh, on the past, uh, uh, on um, on the cases that have to be dealt with, the allegations and so forth. And that is true, of course. We need to do whatever we can do to do justice to victims. But nobody, at least at that time, spoke about what can we do, what needs to be done today to prevent further abuse today and for the future. So we set up the Center for Child Protection at the Gregorian University, and um, yeah, this is how I, I came to this topic. So your work is centered on implementing reforms that prevent abuse from going on into the future. So these are, are, are these like very technical, managerial, legal recommendations, or...? Okay, we started off with an educational program that was developed by a German state university department for psychiatry, and we set up the Center for Child Protection with the help of the Archdiocese of Munich's funds for um, spreading an e-learning program, a blended learning approach that is an online-based education for church personnel worldwide in how do I detect abuse, what are the signs and symptoms, how do I approach victims, what do I do with the perpetrators, um, how do I build a secure institution. So, um, as to your question, it is a, a multifaceted and interdisciplinary approach. So, you need 
to consider this phenomenon from different uh, ang uh, angles, like law, psychiatry, psychology, therapy. Uh, you need also within the church context to consider uh, theological and spiritual questions when it comes to how victims feel and perceive the, the church and their perpetrators. Can you say more about the that last part? What about the spiritual and theological things do we need to pay attention to? Yeah, first and, uh, first and foremost, you need to realize that an abuse by a priest and especially a Catholic priest uh, for uh, for many people and especially, I mean, for, for victims, but not only for victims, um, is so uh, grievous and is more difficult to bear than the abuse by a sports trainer or a psychologist or a policeman or a public school teacher. Uh, that uh, the specificity of, of this kind of abuse is that um, the trust in God and the trust in, in the church is potentially shaken or destroyed. Because for whatever reason, um, people expect that Catholic um, priests um, uh, live up to a higher standard than other people and, and, uh, and that they incarnate trust. Uh, and when that is destroyed by these horrible acts and crimes, um, uh, many victims share, like the person with whom I met yesterday, share that their faith in God is gone. And, and this is something that we in the church have to realize uh, and very often, unfortunately, that was forgotten or was not paid attention to enough. Uh, this element, um, which includes not only the abuse itself, but also the, the institutional response. Many victims tell me that they were more hurt by the cold, um, defensive response uh, by the church authorities and church mm. leaders uh, rather than by the abuse itself. So when, pe when people say things like, oh, it happens in other parts of society too, they found that uh, more hurtful in a lot of ways sometimes. Yes, um, this element is something that uh, for many victims, for many secondary victims, means friends, family, uh, colleagues, uh, parishes, dioceses that are hurt by uh, the abuse in, the, in a second degree. This is the, the most destructive feature because a priest represents Christ. And when a priest does something good, he represents Christ in the good. If he commits a crime, it seems for many that he represents also Christ as uh, committing a crime almost. Uh, so, and, and when the church doesn't own the issue, uh, we, um, we, we are uh, somehow siding uh, with the evil. And this is something that goes against the mission, the fundamental orientation of the gospel. What have you heard um, from survivors about what they think about Pope Francis's track record on this? Um, you say that they've before encountered leaders who don't listen, and Pope Francis has put an emphasis on that. Are people responding well to his approach? or? Yeah, of course, there is a mixed picture. Um, from those people with whom I am in contact regularly, I hear that they are very happy about uh, his take on, on, on the whole issue. Um, and I can personally testify uh, that, that he is marvelous in meeting people who have suffered and also victims of abuse. I was present in 2014 when he had invited to his house 
six survivors of abuse, two English, two Irish, and two Germans, and I was present as a translator when he met with the two Germans. And I, I can tell here, what I've said also in other occasions, that he is very present to the persons, he is very empathetic. He took the one person who was completely enraged and out of himself, uh, as well as the other person who was very calm, uh, smiled at him and, and shared with him also her spiritual journey. So he was he was able, without knowing what he would expect um, in such a meeting, he was able to, to stay there for 45 minutes each, uh, for each in, uh, meeting um, and, and be for all the time completely present there. So he has a very unique capacity to stay with the suffering, the hurt, and with the inner life of a person. I, what would you say to, I, I think I hear this a lot from uh, Americans and often from survivors, that they're, they're impatient with the, the speed in which change happens in the church, um, even from, from someone like Francis and how he changes in the way he deals with things. Yeah, I'm, I'm also impatient. I would have expected that we had some concrete measures earlier, uh, before the meeting, during the meeting, and after the meeting in February. I know that the things will come out, but it is too, too slow also for the public. Um, Do you think the Vatican understands that, that the public is, it, it, the, the rate they're moving is too slow for what the public expects? Now, this is my point. Uh, the rate is too slow, certainly, for Germans and for U.S. Americans, but the rate is not too slow for Italians, Spaniards, Africans, and Asians. Mm -hmm. The Pope's concern is also to bring the whole church on board, to convince um, um, bishops around the globe, even those who were very defensive until recently, even those who were in denial until very recently, to take on the issue. And um, this is very difficult to bear for victims, that is very difficult to bear for faithful in America or in, in Central Europe, because we, we have been dealing with this for years, you for three decades uh, in, in Central Europe now, nine years only, yeah. mm -hmm. but uh, still people are uh, really disappointed. And I, I fully understand that. And I share this also, at least to some extent, but I also see from my all my travels uh, to 60 countries on, on five and six continents, uh, that if you want to have the Catholic Church on board fully, you need also to take into account other perceptions, other uh, way of of uh, proceeding, and and I think this is one concern that he has. Hmm. So, Father, we we've one of the things that we've found it kind of difficult to be constantly discussing the sex abuse crisis, and we've been doing it for almost a year since the news broke last summer. But you've been doing this work for more than a decade. How do you prevent this work from damaging your mental or spiritual health? Yeah, um, I I think the the most important part is prayer. Secondly, um, many of those victims with whom I am uh, in contact promise, write, declare that they are praying for me and for the work of the CCP, the Center for Child Protection. This is extremely important for me. And, and some of them have, uh, have shared with me their most intimate interior journey and, and prayer life. And this is something invaluable uh, and great for me. Thirdly, I do some sport. Uh, fourthly, I, I like to be with my friends, and um, and this is uh, what sport? Yeah, I I do uh, cycling and mountain hiking, um, 
and uh, yeah, the, this just really, being in nature for me yeah. uh, and walking in nature is is very relaxing. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. We will also now be praying for you too. Um, we do have one last question that we ask all of our guests. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? I think I would canonize um, one survivor of abuse uh, who has shared with me that um, after having gone through hell, literally, in her life, um, with all kinds of uh, further abuse uh, of conscience, not in the church, and uh, difficulties in relations and, 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 their jo and her job and so forth, and trying to commit suicide a number of times, uh, she told me, she confided to me that she is still here on this uh, earth because she had thirsted to return to Jesus Christ. And uh, and she, she found him again after 50 years after the abuse had taken place uh, in, in a way that is deeply moving and deeply... Um, consoling or um, edifying for me and uh, this is somebody who I would propose for canonization. Wow. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and there's survivors you're listening to. Um, thank you for all of this. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Interested in a Catholic angle on healthcare topics? Then check out Catholic Health USA, a podcast of the Catholic Health Association. You can listen and download at chausa.org slash podcast or subscribe through iTunes or Google Play. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week or where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So this week, I've got a consolation. Um, following the desolation I shared on last week's episode, I've gotten a lot of um, really great messages from some of our listeners on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, and it's been so rewarding to receive so much love and support from our community. And it's just such a good reminder of how active God is in my life. Um, even at, you know, I was feeling, at, I was at a very low point last week. And even at that low moment, um, it, it's just good to know that God is there and that's a part of the ministry that we do. And I just really love our listeners for like yeah, reminding no. me of that. Yeah, it's a very reciprocal ministry that yeah. I found again and again. And it was part of the bravery that you showed by willing to share that in this space. So Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Zach. Olga. What do you have this week? I've got a consolation as well. I think I've been in my head a lot more this past week. I think it's either the rain or some nature over the weekend. But those thoughts were feeling very sort of self-referential and kind of anxiety producing, I guess, a lot. I don't know. And I was asking myself if those were prayers. And I was like, no, because I haven't, I'm not really thinking about them, directing them to any person and certainly not God. And I realized that I do this a lot where I'll be thinking about a lot of things and I'm afraid to bring them to God. And I thought, okay, I should probably ask God about that. What's going on there? And in doing that, I realized I have this anxiety about bringing some things to God because I thought I was listening to this voice in my head that said, oh, 
don't take that to God, because if you take that to him, you're going to come away with a laundry list of action items that you have to do, right? And what I was really wanting was just, hey, do you see me? Are you listening to me? Did you see that? And of course, in prayer, God is like, that's all I'll say, right? Like, of course, that can be this relationship. Uh, and so bringing that to God and realizing that is the consolation. The desol- There was a d- period of desolation where mm-hmm. I was listening to that voice that says, don't go to him. He's going he's gonna to make it weird for you, right? <laughs> but thankfully, God's got my back. So that's my consolation this week. Very good. What do you got, Ashley? I also have a consolation, uh, kind of started as a desolation. I was emailing someone and they they told me that they had finals this week. And I just kind of absentmindedly wrote back, oh, like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and I'll be praying for you in your finals. And then as soon as I wrote it, I just like felt like a fraud. I was like, why are you really going to be praying for him in his finals? <laughs> or are you just saying that because it seems like the right thing to say and you want this priest to think you're pious? So that that kind of like feeling of shame over being a fraud uh, led me to look at this journal that's been sitting on my desk. And I was like, I need to put this to use. I'm going to write down his name and I'm going to remember to actually pray for him so that this is not a lie. (laughs) Um, And then so I just kind of started that practice uh, two weeks ago where in the course of my day, if I say I'm going to pray for someone or think maybe I should, I write it down and then I now have something to hold me accountable, which is always <laughs> something I need in my life and especially my prayer life. Um, and it's been really great. And to make that that flip from like, you know, it's, it's so easy to say like thoughts and prayers and have it be inauthentic um, and to flip that and to turn it into a concrete practice that I'm actually making it not about signaling how pious I am, but to actually seeing the other person and and thinking of them in prayer. So, so that's been helpful. I always love getting bailed out by the priest or whoever at Mass who says something to the effect of, and let's remember all the people we said we were going to pray for. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Those guys. Thanks, man. <laughs> so not an uncommon feeling, I yeah. think. <laughs> All right. Jesuitical is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Production help from Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Jan Brown McEwen and Teos3246. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.